Well, you know, it's interesting when people say, so what's a lobbyist? What do you do? And I say we're very much like the sales reps, but instead of selling a widget or a stent, we're selling public policy. We're selling an idea, selling a fact. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. You know, in the previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked to advocates from many different backgrounds, many walks of life, a real diversity of people who have come from different places with different experiences. Some spent a few years on Capitol Hill, some their entire careers in congressional leadership politics. We've talked with people from associations, consulting firms, law firms, coalition building, social activists, people who had worked inside an administration, who were involved in higher education and healthcare and a number of other topics. Our guest expert today checks many of those boxes, but she does come to her DC career in somewhat of a unique way, and I'm gonna let her talk about that in just a little bit. We're joined today by Brenda Becker, Senior Vice President of Global Government Affairs with Boston Scientific. Brenda, thanks for being here, and welcome to 80 Proof Politics. Well, it's great to be here, Bill. So you've been doing this 13 years. Absolutely. Done it a long time. But your career in town is much deeper than that. But tell us a bit more about Boston Scientific first and and why they care about the policy world that is Washington, D.C. Boston Scientific is a medical device company, and so we transform lives through um, non-invasive technology. We have about 13,000 products, but we're best known for cardio, so pacemakers, defibrillators, ICD stents, but we cover almost all parts of the body except for orthopedics. We're probably one of the most highly regulated industries, and so everything that we do at Boston Scientific is somehow touched by government. So it's very important for us to be at the table to make sure that we're shaping those policies that impact our patients around the world. So what percentage of time does that require you to spend with Congress or the FDA, other agencies? So we have a whole uh, division of people that work on the regulatory side. The only time we work with the regulatory is when we go through a user fee debate. So we pay... um, into the system to get our products approved. Half is appropriated and then part is paid for the industry. Pharma has something similar um, as well. So when that goes through Congress every five years, we have to, once the uh, agreement between FDA and the industry is pulled together, then it goes to Congress to be approved and then all sorts of shenanigans can happen up there. So we have to watch to make sure that that agreement um, is put through Congress in a way that is acceptable to both the industry and the FDA. You know, for several years now, a lot of energy has been spent in this space on FDA reform. Is is that still an important topic for you? Are you still engaged in that? 
Yes, uh, there. You know, as you know, activism around the country has become uh, part of every day. With the social media, I call social me media the uh, toilet bowl of the internet. So, whatever gets put out there is somewhat become believable. Look, we wouldn't be in the marketplace if our products were bad. Um, or, or hurting people. So we have just as much at stake to have a Gold Star FDA and that our products are safe and effective for every patient as best we can. Human body is an interesting um, thing and in, what goes in your body is gonna be different than what goes in mine, but we are very much uh, into a strong brand at Boston Scientific and safe and effective. Well, if you don't have anything specific happening in Congress on your topics over the course of a year or a, a session, do you spend a lot of time talking about this in other policy environments? Yeah, I mean, we work with our communications team and the com company, our regulatory teams, uh, always to make sure that we have a strong brand, that we're doing the right thing. I mean, not only do we look at um, healthcare patients, but what's our environmental footprint and making sure that we care about what's happening in the environment. We have huge um, recycling and how to make our you know, operations more efficient uh, so that our footprint is less out there. Um, our communities, how can we be a good community player? We do all sorts of different things with heart runs and building homes and, and very, very active in our communities. And we have a foundation that also helps with that. And we also want to be the employer of choice. So we're very big on diversity and inclusion and not only of of women and men and LGBTQ, but also in a thought. But I don't think there's a day that goes by that there isn't something, whether it's internationally, globally, in a different country on an issue, or in the states. So I have people that do international, federal, and state. So it's not just about Washington, but all over the world. We have to these days. It's a, it's a global discussion, right? Absolutely. We multinational. It used to be our borders were, you know, from port to port on a, a boat or airplane. Now with the internet, it's global. Everybody's connected and interconnected. With thirteen thousand plus medical device products, you must have a huge footprint in a number of areas. I mean, you must have locations throughout the states. Sure. We have uh, our, our biggest is in Marlboro, Massachusetts, up near Boston, Minnesota. We have Valencia, California, Spencer, Indiana. And then we have some little um, different places in Coventry, Rhode Island, and down in Alpharetta, Georgia. So there's, there's little places, but those are predominantly our big ones, Minnesota, Massachusetts, California, and Indiana. Now, when you're dealing with Congress, does that create a natural constituency? Absolutely. So, you know, when you look at an industry, so we, we are a member of AVAMED, which is our industry association, and we have a level playing field and what those policies look like, and then the sales guys can go out and competitively beat the crap out of each other. But in Washington, we're very, very aligned. We work very closely together. And so when you look at where your facility states are that's natural those are the people that are going to most likely be your champion because you are a constituent they care about about what you say not that other members don't so the natural constituencies definitely are where you have a presence and you have employees and they want to pay attention because they represent you you know one thing that a lot of our experts on 80 proof politics like to talk about are the tools of advocacy that they use how do you get Boston Scientific noticed in this very crowded healthcare policy field in Washington? Well, you know, it's interesting when people say, so what's a lobbyist? What do you do? And I say we're very much like the sales reps 
but instead of selling a widget or a stent, we're selling public policy, we're selling an idea, selling a fact. So I think the most important thing is to, you know, like any customer, so our customers are, you know, whether it's the parliaments in uh, Britain or members of Congress or state capitals, why would they care about our issue? And so we always bring it back to the patient because it is about the patient at the end of the day and all of them represents patients because everybody has touches the healthcare system at some point. So, you know, we work with our industry association. I really think like sales reps, it's about our relationships. So first and foremost, we make very strong relationships, which means, you know, going to uh, hearings, receptions, dinners, um, setting up meetings with chief of staff on the Hill so that you start to develop a relationship because with relationships comes trust. And so you're right, there's 4,000 lobbyists, I think here in Washington alone, um, that's about the number registered lobbyists, there's probably more. And so how do I compete against all their other issues. So I think, first of all, you have to pay attention to what's going on on Capitol Hill. You know, you've got to make sure your timing is good when you're going to talk about your issue, um, number one. Number two, why does a member care about it? And so you have to help them with that story. You have to tell your story and why it's important and why they something needs to be fixed or why you need to have something promoted or why you have to kill a really bad idea, which is what we spend most of our time doing. And so it's just finding a way to build those relationships to make a difference by why they should care about it. Again, it's they have so many competing interests every day. Um, and then at the end of the day, um, telling, telling them also what their competitors are up to. So as you're building these relationships and, and you're reaching out to members and staff, are you using some of the old traditional tools, you know, like white papers and one-on-one meetings, or, or has technology pretty much supplanted all of those old forms of communication? Well, with technology, everything is much quicker than it used to be. So we, you know, we're only as good as the information and the knowledge we have and expertise. I don't always know everything about you know, 13,000 products, different divisions, seven business uh, operations. So we align one of our people here on team. I've got a team of seven people, one person to each business unit so that they're aligned. So what's keeping my executive committee up at night? What's the biggest challenges happening in our business unit? So we start there. Then we start scanning, you know, what is the president saying during the State of the Union? What didn't get finished last year? So we can start building out our agenda for what does that look like. And then we use our relationships and information. We do have um, some consultants. We do at the state level, federal, and then uh, international. We work with groups like the National Association of Manufacturers to work on issues that maybe aren't completely healthcare, but they uh, apply to corporate America. You know, uh, human resources issues, labor issues, um, tax issues. Um, we work with our uh, associations for the medical device industry. And we also, um, so we do have consultants at the state level and also here in DC. Um, not a lot of them. We, we went through zero-based budgeting a couple years ago and lost a lot of our funding. So we had to become lean and mean. And, and again, we use um, one pagers. I think, I think because of the internet and the ability for people to Google and do all sorts of stuff. Uh, we're all ADHD at the end of the day, very short s- spans of, of attention. So you've got to keep it brief. I always try to pretend I'm the member of Congress and this issue isn't something that I 
necessarily care about. You know, I used to go out when we used to be able, before gift band days, of go golfing, and, and my boss would come up, oh, you're going to be with Senator so-and-so on the golf course today. Here's the one pager. I go, give me the one line. Yeah. So you have to say, what what do you what is your ask at the end of the day and how do you build your arguments up into that ask what are you asking that person to do and what are your most compelling arguments so the tools are to synthesize um, again i think goes back to what we talked about previously is why should they care about this and so we use all sorts of different tools to to do it just the some of the traditional but i think with the you know, social media now is out there and, you know, our company has Elevate, which is on, you know, goes to LinkedIn and goes to the Twitter accounts and that kind of thing. So they can take messages for the company and they put it on a platform and they have many of us using it so that you can get a further reach. Um, I think social media, you know, when you look at the traditional grassroots bill, we We've done some traditional grassroots over the years of getting your employees to sure. to weigh in on you know repeal the device tax for us is a hundred million dollar issue, um, and and we we mobilize quite a few people, but a lot of the offices are blocking those kind of things now. So it's all through social media. So now we use social media through a grassroots campaign of how do you put something on a member's Twitter account, um, and and Facebook and and all those type of different mediums. I don't even know what half of them are anymore, but I have smart people here that do. So, you know, social media has become the um, media, and I guess that would best reflect how to get your views out than the traditional, you know, grassroots letter campaign or calling the offices. I still think picking up the phone every once in a while or writing a handwritten thank you note go a long way, but um, a lot of younger people than me would say oh, we don't do that anymore <laughs> it is a valuable tool and i know you did a lot of that in your previous life with blue cross blue shield exactly and i want to circle back to that you know just a little bit on my career i grew up in michigan uh and started doing i was a political science major out of michigan state and a week out of college started at blue cross blue shield of michigan i said i wanted to be a lobbyist my i was going to be a teacher and my father was in the state legislature and ended up being chairman of the Republican Party in Michigan. And he said, if I, and he was a principal and teacher, and I'm very close with my dad, so I wanted to do what he did because it was, I always thought it was cool. And he, at the time when I graduated, there was overabundance of teachers. So he said, if I do it all over again, I'd go be a lobbyist and you can make more money. Well, who doesn't want to make more money, right? Yeah. So I ended up getting in lobby. I don't think I really knew what it meant at the time. I kind of did that you were supposed to have people do what you wanted them to do. So I started at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Michigan, did national state relations for Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. That's what got me here. I moved here not knowing a soul. Uh, in 1985 and then I worked my way up I started doing the political action committee the state stuff is great but it's kind of the stepchildren here in Washington mm. because everything's focused on federal government or and the, the capital yeah the minor leagues I thought it was great because really things happen much quicker in the states and they bubble up to the federal level kind of to your point earlier yeah. you have to watch what's going on in the states because one state thinks something's a good idea and then it becomes through the National Council of State Legislators and other groups a you know model piece of legislation whether it is or not so I ended up going to um, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association state 
national state relations, moved to the federal side, started raising money for the PAC. And then I was the one, you got to remember, I started before the big revolution in the early 1990s when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took over after 40-year reign by the Democrats. And I was one of the few out there doing Republican fundraising and and political stuff. I loved it. Um, It's it was phenomenal um, work, but when that transition happened, there was very few of us out there because everybody was doing Democrats because they were in control for so long. But after 20 years with Blue Cross, you decided to jump to the administration. You spend time at the Department of Commerce. You were doing legislative intergovernmental affairs, and then you go to the White House where you did legislative affairs for the vice president. How did that happen? I mean, did you work on the campaign for a year or something? Were you involved in the transition? So then that ended up, I moved up the track, became vice president of congressional communications for the association and was working on different campaigns and and was helping the Bush campaign. And after he got elected, I started getting calls. Would I be interested in, you know, with my network and my understanding of the process, be willing to come work in government? I, I had never served before, so I was honored to even be asked. And uh, I was actually headed over to HHS uh, for Tommy Thompson, who is the secretary, but didn't get a chance to meet with him yet. And then I get this call, would I go over and work for Don Evans as uh, the assistant secretary for alleged affairs at the Commerce Department? And it actually, it was after 20 years in healthcare, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be refreshing to get out of healthcare? Um, and here I am again. But uh, I ended up going over. I thought commerce would be interesting. I knew very little about it, but it was, you know, such a diverse um agency. So went over there and worked for Don Evans. Um, and he knew nobody. You got to remember, he was from Texas, uh, George Bush's best friend. So they needed somebody that could give him an entree and brand on Capitol Hill. So I knew most of the members because I did their political helping them fundraise and, and help them with their, their goals to get reelected. So um, ended up Getting that job had to be um, confirmed by the Senate, which was a little daunting. I'm like, oh my God, I got to go do a hearing. Justify myself. Yeah, and uh, I got uh, confirmed and worked for there for three years, and then I got asked. Um, Candy Wolf was doing uh, government affairs, legislative affairs for uh, Vice President Cheney, and she called me over one day for coffee to see if I would be interested in letting her put my name forward. And I go, what? Vice President Cheney? What can I possibly offer him? And so uh, she, so I accepted the job um, and had three fabulous years in the White House. Um, and it's not anything I'd ever, you know, put on my five to ten year, you know, plan is I want to go work in the White House. But anybody here in Washington knows that's the creme de la creme to go work for an administration. It was a great experience. Um, I was very honored. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. I didn't really know 
much about the Department of Commerce. So I had to learn about the Department of Commerce, but I used my skills. I think everybody who's listening to this, what are you, you know, what are you good at? You know, my kids went to school at Bishop Ireton and St. Francis de Sales was be who you are and be that well. Don't be try to be something you're not. So I knew what my skill set was and it was my ability to connect people, my ability to build relationships and share those relationships and branding with the Department of Commerce the secretary, as well as my understanding how the Hill worked. Oh, that had to be an invaluable experience for someone like Don Evans, who came from outside the D.C. bubble. So when I went into the Department of Commerce, it's just the information flow is tremendous. Um, Everything coming at you at once. And you have to kind of filter through what is the most important to the president of the United States. What are we trying to accomplish? accomplish? And it's one big team. It's one big bureaucracy. Um, there's a lot that I learned um, going over there, but very different because as a lobbyist, you have to really work to build those relationships. When you're in the administration, people want to get to know you because you're at the source of something needing to be fixed or a policy or needing to have a meeting to, to present your case. When you're in the private sector, you have to really work to say, okay, why would they want to meet with me? And will they return my phone call? Again, going back to relationships and networking is yeah. extremely important. It had to be a constant struggle to make it relevant. Right, yeah. right. So did you find that you had to play defense more than offense at Commerce? Um, you could push an agenda, but you also had to be um, cognizant of what they were thinking about. So. Just because the president wanted something didn't mean the House and Senate wanted something in the same thing. So you had to kind of find a way. I mean, I think back when I think back, even when I first started doing this in the 80s, compromise was not a bad word. Today's compromise is a very difficult word for people because it's become so politically polarizing. So when we were in the White House, we had an agenda. Everybody was marching to that tune, but you had to revise along the way because to take in the concerns of whether it be the Democrats or the Republicans. In the end of the day, you had to get it through the House, through the Senate, before it could even come to the president for signature. So everybody had to work together. Um, You see some of that now, but not quite as much as it used to be, um, because again, it's become, I think with social media and everything else, everybody's got these large megaphones. You look at AOC, 29-year-old member of Congress who has a large megaphone with very little experience. Um, When you look at uh, Speaker Pelosi, she's got a lot of experience, a lot of wealth of, of knowledge, history, and her megaphone is is loud because she's a speaker, but not as loud because of social media. And there had to be an entirely different kind of adjustment when you went to work for the vice president. Yeah, it was, um, well, it was such an honor, and I, I was very nervous um, to go work over there. It was like, what can I possibly offer a man who has been elected to Congress, had been, you know, chief of staff in a White House, Memorial Secretary of Defense. Yeah. Um, so I just realized that I was his connection and ears and eyes on Capitol Hill. So, you know, when when somebody like the president, vice president, the higher you go up in office, whether it's a CEO what, or, you know, somebody like the vice president or the president of the United States, they're not in the mainstream every day, so you need to provide them. So I would go back and say, well, the speaker just did this. And he would say, oh, he had to do that, you know, for his members or his flank or this or that. But it it was just a whole different level of process of um, working with others 
because uh, you know you have staff secretaries, a very big bureaucracy, and you have to make sure you've touched all your bases to get to the best policy. You have to sometimes go with your gut and and trust that you know enough because things can happen very quickly. So you you the information coming your way is tremendous. Uh, I, by the time I briefed the vice president, he'd already been into the security briefing, uh, meeting with the president, uh, senior staff meetings. And I'm like, how, what can I possibly pro provide him? But the one observation I would make, I know a lot of people think um, Vice President Cheney might be Darth Vader. He's really a kind and family-oriented person. I learned a ton from him. And one thing I learned from him by, by observation was after all those meetings and I was briefing him on something, he always listened and acted like you heard it for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I think he did that never to cut off his source of information because you never know what nugget. So you know how people come oh, yeah. into your office and they'll say, hey, Bill, you know, did you hear so-and-so on the Hill did this? Oh, yeah, I, I know that already. Well, after you've done that three or four times, you've just cut me off yeah. from coming in to see you and telling you. So never cut off your source of information. Um, don't right. be the know-it-all. And, and the vice president was, uh, he taught me that. Just He never said that. I just observed it. And because he had so much information, he's, he's, you know, second in the nation leader and has access to everybody wanting to tell him everything. Right. And he's, he listened like he heard it for the first time. You, know, you mentioned him being a family man, but you were doing this at a time when you had children at home. I mean, that had to be a huge strain, trying to balance those two, because it seems like working in the White House could be a 24-7 job if you let it. It was a 24-7, but I, I don't even think we had... Um, might have had blackberries back then and cell phones and beepers remember pagers um, my kids i think when i went into the department of commerce were six and eight um but thank god i had a wonderful husband who was a great partner i think it's all about balance and what does it there's there's no secret to balance out there um, for life uh, work but you have to find your moments of balance and my kids always came first. Um, I was still homeroom mother. I coached my daughter's basketball team when I worked for Vice President Cheney. I took the 8 o'clock <laughs> practice time because the girls were older anyways um, so that I could get there. But he was very supportive of that. And while I was working for Vice President Cheney, my husband came down, uh, diagnosed with cancer. Um, so they were very supportive of uh, me taking care of um, those type of things too. So he was very supportive, um, and you build teams. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you're when you're working in the White House, you or any organization, you build team of helping one another, and that's what we did. It's very common that people who are at the top of that pyramid are so invested in a high concentration, high energy job like that, but they often get burnt out. How long were you at the White House? Three what? years. Was so it an issue of burnout, or was it just Well, time? it was administration. Um, I was there six years, and I thought I'd go for a year, right? I'll go serve for a year, um, do public service, and because you take a huge pay cut. <laughs> I, I took a huge pay cut to go in there, lost my country club membership, lost my you know expense account. Um, but I thought it was important to do that for a number of reasons, and you do have to be aware when it's time to leave. And for me, I was actually going to leave sooner, and then my husband um, was diagnosed with cancer, so it was a year of surgeries. It was not a good time to make a job change, and the, like I said, the, the vice president team and White House were very supportive. Um, but you do get to the point, I did not want to shut off the lights. I thought it was time to, to go back. My kids, you know, your kids always need you. They still need them. They're in their 20s, and they still, you know, need me. But 
Um, I just thought it was, for me, it just seemed like the right time, and I got the right opportunity to come work for Boston Scientific. I wanted to, you know, when you look at, when I looked at my career, I, I realized what I wanted to do, um, and I wanted to run a Washington office and, and take a shot at, and, and a risk at doing that. And um, it just seemed like the right time. I got the right opportunity um, by Boston Scientific, smaller company than a real large corporation. At the time, I think we were maybe a $7 billion company when I started. Now we're almost a $10 billion company. And so it looked like the right opportunity. It's never easy to leave the White House. It's just the best job, in my opinion, in the world. But you want to serve that that president and, and vice president well in that administration. And I just felt it was time to go. So you make the transition to Boston Scientific. And the last question I want to ask you about that specifically is moving to the medical device side of healthcare policy had to be a big difference after all those years on the insurance side. Did that require a massive cultural indoctrination for you? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was not going to go back in healthcare. I mean, I fell into my first job in healthcare. It wasn't something I said, oh, I want to go work for healthcare. I always ask people when I sit down and mentor them is, you know, what's your passion? When you open the newspaper, you know, what what is it that interests you the most? Do you go to Dear Abby first or do you go to the sports section? What What do you like? And so I just fell into healthcare and just built my career along the way. And so I was going to get out because I went to commerce and I was, you know, detainees, all sorts of different issues that I had never been involved in and exposed to before. And and after 20 years, I think people still saw me as a healthcare person. But when they presented to me that it was life-changing technologies, you know, spinal cord stimulators that help people with pain, get them off op- opioids. And, you know, you can put in a stent and somebody's off the table and back to work in a day seemed pretty fascinating when I saw some of the technologies and the things that we do to to help people's lives be better and their families too because if somebody's in a hospital for a long time it's draining I've been there and so it was exciting the thought of representing you know insurance is tough especially these days nobody likes their insurance I hated to tell people I work I was very proud of Blue Cross Blue Shield but I hate to get on an airplane and say because somebody had a claim problem or an issue and you know we're going through surprise you know billing now and people don't understand their health care you know we it's not been a consumer driven it's been company driven or you know insurance through Medicare and Medicaid. So anyways, it was intriguing to come work for a company that was doing some pretty phenomenal things. But it was different, you know, because I was so used to being beat up as an insurance company, even though Blue Cross was looked at as a very, you know, um, strong brand. You mentioned earlier during your Blue Cross Blue Shield experience that you had done a lot of fundraising, that you ran the pack. I'd love to get your take on this current trend of candidates declaring they're not going to take any political action money? Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about political action committees. First of all, they they came out of Watergate when the Nixon-Watergate situation, so that, that they are you know, heavily regulated, all transparent, everything's reported, there's limits. When you think of a campaign co- costing $13 million for a house race these days, the most a PAC can give in a cycle, two-year cycle on a house is 10000 
And so you're not influencing, you're not buying votes. What you're doing is, I always put it to um, a job evaluation. So when I sit down with my boss and he gives me my job evaluation, tells me if I'm doing a good job, and then gives me my, my bonus and my merit increase, he's told me I did a good job. Same thing we're doing with helping members of Congress get elected, is that we're showing them that their job review with us is good. And, and it's really, companies can't give money to the PAC. It's all voluntary. So my peers here at Boston Scientific decide they're going to give their hard-earned dollars to PAC because they believe in what Boston Scientific is doing, that these you know, reforms we need that you talked about earlier or we need something done or stopped, we need to be able to build champions on the Hill to help us do that. We need to, because unfortunately, campaigns are so expensive, we all have to be a part of that. Um, so I think PACs play an extremely important role. I think what's happening we're seeing now is activism within companies and, and people in different communities um, are looking at PAC contributions. Even though they're not contributing, they're still looking at it as the brand for a company. And so we're, we're looking at different ways to be more transparent um, to involve people in the process, how do we become more diverse and inclusive in our PAC contributions. Um, so it's, it's always a challenge. I think people today see Washington as so toxic, it's almost made everything ugly. And what we do is so important that everybody has a voice in what we're doing here. And so I think people lash out at things like PACs. They don't really understand it. They don't, again, what, when I go out, it's like we're sales reps and this is how we do it so that, that they can relate to what is government affairs. And we do, a, I started here 13 year, almost 13 years ago at Boston Scientific and I said, how do we communicate to employees? Because we're not gonna get a PAC contribution or anybody write a letter to a member of Congress or do tweet, tweet now. Um, if they don't understand what we do. So we started a newsletter that goes to all employees every Friday. We call it the happy hour newsletter. And um, snippets, each article of what's going on in Washington and why it's important to you as a Boston Scientific employee. And it's really built a brand for government affairs here in our office and in our company. And people are now coming to us instead of doing silly things, not thinking through the impact of government action they're now coming to us saying, oh my God, you know, we need this fixed, or what do you think about this? So it's really built a brand. Government affairs has become very integral here in our company. You touched on an aspect of PACs that often gets ignored or at least not factored into this discussion, and that's that they are employee representative bodies. I mean, they're funded by employees, and a PAC contribution represents the needs and desires of a, a body of employees. Yeah, like-minded people who care about, this isn't about, you know, people want to make it about social issues, but it's really about bringing technologies to patients around, you know, for the PAC, it's just a federal PAC. So just here in Washington, but helping us to develop those relationships is a key tool to developing relationships with these members of Congress to try to stand out as we started with earlier. How do you stand out? Well, part of it is being politically active because they want to be reelected. That's their job evaluation at the end of the their cycle. Now, Brenda, one thing we haven't talked about is, in your resume is you were on the President's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. Yep. The old, remember the old President Council patch, yes. Well, how did that come about? Well, you know, I've, um, I wanted to serve um, in some capacity with the new administration as best I could. Um, I really couldn't go back in for a number of reasons, but um, they have so many 
commissions and boards and they need people to serve that have some experience. So um, I started thinking through what they are and, and it seemed like a good match. And so I got appointed um, to be on the President's Commission on Fitness uh, nutrition and sports and it's something I'm passionate about I work out all the time I think being fit says a lot about yourself and it's one way to get out all my energies that I didn't get out throughout the day and make sure everybody doesn't go crazy around me because I have a lot of energy and so it's really important to me and I, the youth in our country are sitting behind technology and not going out to play and ride their bike and participate in sports so there's a youth strategy we hope coming out in the fall um, to really get people, you know, to get active, um, young people in particular, we're seeing a lot of obesity. And so it's important to me. I, I care a lot about fitness, and, and you see a lot of people that are just not healthy, and it's just bad on our healthcare system, diabetes and all sorts of different stuff. Well, good for you, and congrats. That's quite an honor. Oh, That's thank great. you. I'm very excited about it. Well, in conclusion, I do want to ask you this one last question question. Now, I know you talk to a lot of young professionals who come to town, want to get immersed in the policy realm here in D.C. Do you have a cogent piece of advice that you tend to give them? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, if you're in college, internships. Start working and building your resume. It's great that you get a 4.0, but at the end of the day, it's what have you done? And so I tell people if they want to get involved, work on a campaign. You can go anywhere, um, any city, any state, and you can sign up to be um, a campaign volunteer, uh, a worker. Look at calling your local rep and becoming an intern. And if you want, really want to come to town, go be a staff assistant. You can answer phones. That's where you're going to start. But there's, it's like a big college campus up there. It's just network full of people and opportunity. Um, and, and think through what you're passionate about. Um, and, and it should lead to, there's, there's all sorts of reasons. There's a day book here that you can go on. There's a, you know, a Republican Facebook group, Job Bank. There You can go to the U.S. House and Senate, and they have job banks there and listings. And Brad Travers has a you know, um, website for job opportunities. And just start, you know, a lot of people have uh, friends and neighbors and didn't want to pay any attention to their parents' friends, but start talking to parents, your parents' friends, and saying, how'd you get to where you are, and how did you do this today, and do you know somebody, and start building your network so that you can go accomplish what it is that you want to do. No, oh, that's absolutely great advice. Well, on that note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I want to thank Brenda Becker for joining us. Oh, you're, oh, you're awesome, Bill. Thanks. And remember... No matter what you think about the current state of politics here in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. That's great. That's a great ending. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions.
Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. 